Thanks for taking the time to listen to these recordings of our Sunday morning sermons. The Door Church is one church in two locations on mission to see lives restored with the gospel for God's glory, and we'd love to have you join us. For more information about our gatherings in Louisville and Argyle, visit us at thedoorchurch.net. Now, let's worship God by opening his word. Good morning. We're going to be in Romans 6, verses 1 through 7. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you, in the chair in front of you, and that is going to be on page 886. I'll give you a second to get there. Um, My name is Mindy Gragg. My husband Parker and I have been members of The Door for about four years. We've got three little ones living their best lives in TDC Kids, um, and both my husband and I are blessed to uh, trade off serving on the worship team. So we are just so thankful for our church family here. So again, that was Romans 6, verses 1 through 7. It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. This is the word of God. Thank you, Mindy. Good to be with you. Uh, My name is Brad, and I'm the campus pastor here. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you open our eyes to your beautiful word, Uh, humble us to to be uh, receptive to what you have for us, help us to see your beauty, Holy Spirit, minister us in this time through the scriptures, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, So the sermon series that we're in is called Justified, and we have been going through the first five chapters of Romans, and this is, well... The subheadings, by the way, were created by the translators. They're not actually in there, but that's what we're doing. Um, The first five chapters, though, are are really about the doctrine of justification. The the whole book is, but Paul, the Apostle Paul, he's the guy who wrote this. He was set aside by God for the work of of the ministry. And one of the things that he did is he wrote a bunch of the Bible. So the, the first five chapters are a theological masterpiece about justification. And what does that mean? That means to be made right with God. It is how a holy and righteous God redeems people who are neither holy nor righteous, pays for them, and draws them to himself. This is all through the work of Christ. And so the Apostle Paul, this book is not a book, it's a letter, and it was written to the Christians in first century Rome. And so it's a a few decades after Jesus has risen from the dead, after he's been crucified, And there are Jews and Gentiles in the congregation. They were probably reading this letter aloud so that they could all hear. And so the the Jewish people, the people of God, the covenant people are the in people. And the Gentiles are the not in people. They're the the not Jewish people. And so they're in the same congregation and they're, they're trying to work out what it looks like to walk in Christ. So Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit speaking into this. And so there's many angles that, that these people would have wanted to explore, wanted to consider. They had some questions 
probably, that, that we might have too. Questions like this, like are all people accountable to God for their sin? So is everybody accountable? Those that have heard the gospel, those that have not heard the gospel, is everyone accountable to God for their sin? What do the Jews, the religious people, do with their religious heritage? So for you, it might be, what do I do with my Baptist heritage, my Catholic heritage, my whatever, your religious heritage once you come to Christ, or rather he comes to you? What do you do with the law? If you know your Bible at all, there's, there's a lot of, of, of moral commands of God that, that are put upon us that we are to obey, and we don't. So what do we do with the law? Do we throw it out? Do we keep it? What, what do we do with the law? What does it feel like to have peace with God through faith? That's, that's just a line out of chapter 5. Have peace with God through faith. What's that experience like? So they're asking these questions possibly, and, and Paul is reading their mail. And, and so he's pointing them back to Jesus over and over again. And so are all people accountable to God? Yes, they are. You are accountable to God for your sin. And so am I. Romans 1 says that, that all people are without excuse. We're all accountable to God. But through Christ, all people can be made right. It is an open, exclusive invitation. Through Christ, you can be made right and he can handle your accountability. What do you do with your religious heritage? Your identity. I grew up Baptist. I grew up Catholic. I'm a Jew, whatever. Well, if you're in Christ, Christ is your primary identity. Not your religious heritage, not your nationality, but is Christ. What do we do with the law? Well, Jesus is the fulfiller of the law. He perfectly fulfills it. He's also the forgiver of transgressors under the law. So he pays for our transgressions, for our sins, that we can look at the law as perfect and beautiful and, and seek to be obedient and yet know Christ pays for it. What does it feel like to have peace with God through faith? When well, Christ, we can, we can reign in life, it says in the scriptures. Walking by grace, you can experience what it means to be a freed person in him. And so the first five chapters are this, this theological masterpiece of justification. And it's not like he's stopping that, but he's, Paul is continuing into the idea of sanctification, which is just a fancy word for being made more like Jesus. And there's a critical distinction here that we must make. You see, the, the, the letter flows perfectly it's not that our sanctification leads to our justification. What I mean by that is you may have been taught or you may think, you may have heard, if you want to be justified, if you want to be made right with God, you must be obedient and you must do this and you must do that. You must be very Christ-like to meet some bar that God would love you that your sanctification would lead to your justification. You become Christ-like enough at some point that God says, justify. Well, that's unbiblical, actually wicked theology. Your justification leads to your sanctification. Your justification, you're being purchased by Christ. Your ransom 
it leads to, as you behold Jesus for all he is, for all he has done, it leads you into Christ-likeness. A transformation occurs. So your justification leads to your sanctification. It leads to you putting on this justification, walking in it. And so we have seen in, in chapters one through five, and we'll continue to see, but we have seen in these chapters what Jesus has done for us. But there's a cool turning point in chapter six where we begin to see what that does to us, and what that does in us. And so Paul starts with a question. Before we get to the question, little context. So in verse in chapter five, Paul talks about reigning in life. He talks about walking in grace. What he says there really is that it's not that you have done anything to save yourself if you're in Christ, but that he has done everything. Jesus does the work. Jesus does the fulfilling. Jesus does the paying for on the cross. Jesus is the one who was resurrected and conquers sin and death. You did nothing. You brought sin to the equation. That's what we bring. And Christ does everything. And, and, and you can be purchased irrespective of how perfect you are, how good you are. It's about the goodness of Christ. And you can be draped in his righteousness. What that means is if you are a Christian, if you have surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, when the Father looks on you, he does not see project. He does not see failure. He does not see somewhat disappointing, but still my child. He sees you as righteous as Christ as perfect as Jesus, robed in his righteousness. That's grace. So this begs a question, I think. If we can't do anything to save ourselves, if we can never measure up, and, and, and even though our, our, we can't get in that way, we also, as we continue to sin, that's also paid for. So grace covers and grace covers are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? If it's going to be paid for anyway, if it was nailed to the cross anyway, if it's going to be forgiven anyway, is our pardon now permission? Is our liberation now license? Is it like the Autobahn where the speed limit has been revoked and we just kind of get after it, knowing that Jesus will cover it? This is a, a logical question. If you're a logical thinker, you're like, I, I see the, the, the train of thought. It's, it's a philosophical question. If you're one of those, you know, worldview people where you're like, man, well, if that, then this. But more than that, this is a very religious question. It's very likely that, that Paul is reading the mail of religious people here because he's bringing grace to bear on them, on us. Grace sounds very nice until you actually comprehend it if you're a religious person. It's offensive. You see, if I grant Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What do I do with my good deeds? So it's like, I, I know I don't quite measure up enough to save myself, but maybe I'm a pretty decent dude. Maybe I'm a 
good neighbor and I'm nice to people when I see them when I walk in and take my trash out. Or maybe I'm an okay husband. Maybe I give some money here and there. Maybe I'll let you borrow my car if you need it. You know, maybe I'm okay. What do I do with all that? What about my goodness? I know it's not enough, but, but what about it? Grace says, the gospel says, you should repent of your goodness too. John Gerstner once said that it's not so much our sin that keeps us from God, it's our damnable good works. It's that we think we're doing something. Grace says you should repent even of your goodness because your goodness is tainted, it's marbled, it's, it's, it's messed up with bad motive and sin and self-salvation intentions. That's offensive. Grace disarms too. That's really offensive. So whether it's legalism, so legalistic Christianity where you've got to follow these certain rules in order to be loved by God, which is not the Bible. I don't know what book you use for that, but or Judaism, where there's the law, you keep the law, where you don't keep the law, you've got atonement and, and you know, different rituals. Or uh, if you're of a political ideology, conservatism, these are if-then equations. So if you're a conservative, you can put the flag in front of your house and you can work real hard and you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you can vote a certain way and you can be American and you'll be accepted for that. If you're a liberal, you can drive a Prius and you can talk about equality and use the right terms and you'll be accepted for that. It's an if-then equation. Politics are actually a good way to know like, hey, I'm okay if, because your people will accept you until they eat their own because both parties actually end up doing that. But grace disarms you from that if-then equation. Grace takes the power out of your hands and says, no, no, you don't just display the symbols of Christ. You don't just play Jesus in certain areas because you don't anyway, but, but, but no, the power is all out of your hands. It is only in Christ. He is the only way to salvation, the only one that could ever measure up for you. And so net, net, grace says you're powerless. You don't have any power. Not to save yourself. And so religious people look sideways at grace once they see the implications because it sounds really nice until you actually think about what that means for you. And so the answer, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul is like, well, no. Never may it be is what it really means. By no means. Absolutely not. We should not continue in sin. Verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That part of you has been killed. How can you still live in your sin if you have been purchased by Christ? Verse 4 says, we were buried therefore with him, with Christ, by baptism, into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. That's the tenderloin right there of our verse. To walk in the newness 
of life. To have fresh life. To have new life. It's a fresh way to live. It's living from the righteousness of Christ, knowing that that He measures up for me. Living from the sacrifice of Christ, knowing that, that that condemnation that I fear, that I know I deserve, He took it. There is no condemnation for me. Living from the victory of Christ, knowing that he has conquered sin and Satan and death. He rose from the grave. And that I can live in victory. That's walking in the newness of life. In verse 5, there's this double union, this full abiding that we get. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, that's awesome, but there's more we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We're lifted into newness in Christ. Not only paid for, but lifted into this fresh way of living. Verse 7 says, we've been liberated. No longer slaves to sin. We've been set free from it. So are you walking in the newness of life. Are you walking in this? I'm afraid that some of us are are doing the opposite in many ways, or maybe completely. Instead of walking in the newness of life, maybe we're immobilized in the oldness of life. But Paul is calling us, God is calling us to a fresh way of living. There's an exhortation in the book of Ephesians where Paul really, he's like, hey, put on your new self. In verse 17 of chapter 4, Paul is saying this. He says, now this I say to you, by the way, he's writing just to a different church, same guy. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, the old living, the deadness of life, put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Even our goodness is corrupt and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, that's that fresh way of living, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Put on the new self, Paul says. Walk in the newness of life. This is afforded to you, a fresh way of living. Now, this is not immediate sanctification. Meaning, you are not, when you are saved, you are not Christ-like. You know this if you're a Christian because you're not. It's progressive sanctification. Our our desires, our predispositions are still being renewed and redeemed over time. There's growth. 
If you look back at your life, if you're walking with Jesus, you should see growth in you, in Christ-likeness. By the way, what that looks like is not typically moral perfection, but a sense of awareness of your own depravity. I know that's counterintuitive. But if you walk with the Lord long enough, you become more and more and more aware that you don't deserve grace and more and more aware of how beautiful it is. And so there's a struggle in us, but there's growth, Lord willing. Verse 6 says that our old self was crucified with him. That really means is, is just like there were, there were two criminals crucified alongside Jesus, two guys. They were both killed, so was Jesus. That's what this is saying, just like that. If you're in him, you were there. Your crucifixion happened. And so not only is your crucifixion kind of caught up in Jesus, but it's like that you were alongside Jesus. And what happens with that? The dominion of sin, the body of sin might be brought to nothing that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. When you are baptized into the death of Christ, there is a coup in your soul. There is a regime change, a change in authority from darkness to light. It's like this. If a country was overthrown, it was invaded by a foreign army, they came in, overthrew the place, went into the capital, booted everybody out, y'all got to go new flag goes up, they take power. New government, new laws, new regime, new rule. What if the old people from the old country, the old officials, the old cops, whoever it may be, they kind of hung out in the woods and they come into town and maybe they set a car on fire, they throw a Molotov cocktail, they take shots at some citizens maybe. They're, they're trying to cause havoc, but they're not in power. That's what's going on in our souls if we're in Christ. There's been a regime change. No longer slaves to sin. No longer under the oppressive regime of sin and Satan. But there is still a war going on with our old desires, with our old self. And Satan exacerbates this and plays on this. We are our, our own worst enemy, not Satan. But Satan plays on that wickedness that still dwells in there. And he seeks to fan it to flame. So we still have this old self thing going on. This old life thing going on. Even if you're in Christ. So if, if you're like me, some examples. And you care about what people think. Like I do. I care about what you think of me more than I should. I do. And that may sound harmless. It's not harmless at all, actually. If you are, are one of those people that care about what other people think of you, which in Christianese, by the way, is like fear of man. It's, it's salvation by reputation. So what happens is if you cancel me, or if I humiliate myself, if I get dragged through the mud, it's like a form of death if I am seeking salvation by reputation. And, and, it, and maybe you're like me. Maybe not. Good for you. If you're like me, consider this. 
if the Almighty, the Most High, the Creator of heaven and earth, the Creator and Sustainer of all things, the one who knit you together in your mother's womb, the one who made this beautiful weather outside, if He is pleased with you, if your reputation is not shaky in His mind, if he is permanently pleased with you because of Christ, why in the world do you care what anyone else thinks? Why do I? There's freedom in Christ from caring what other people think. Or maybe you have a defensive spirit. Are you always arguing with people? How many arguments are currently going on in your life? Or how many arguments did you have this past week? It's because you're defensive. You've got your guard up constantly, like you've got to protect yourself. And so this is why I said what I said. I know you took it wrong. This is why I said that. This is why I did that. If you only understood why I did that, you would see that it was the right thing to do. This is why I didn't show up on time. This is why, this is why, this is why. You see, defensiveness is not just pettiness or immaturity. Defensiveness is unbelief. Defensiveness is, is seeing your sin. If you didn't think it was sin, you wouldn't seek to cover it. Seeing your sin not as being nailed to the cross, not as, as being paid for, but being something that you must atone for. If it's not finished, I better explain this thing away. I better cover it up. I better neutralize the, the, the awareness of it. It's DIY atonement. It's old life thinking. If Christ has paid for it, we do not need to be defensive ever. We can listen because we might be wrong. We probably are. Or... One time, my mom said, I have a great mom, so she's not mean, but she said, Brad, you're haughty. I was like, what did you just say? She's like, you are, you're haughty. I'm like, dang. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm like, yes, I am. She's like, you're haughty. You think of yourself more highly than you ought. You're sure, you're a nice guy. Like, you're haughty. It's pride. Romans 12 says that we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but we should see ourselves with sober judgment. See yourself clearly in the mirror. Thank God for his word, the mirror of the word, which gives us sober judgment to go away. I, I should not be haughty. Jesus did not die for, for somewhat bad people. And so you know what haughtiness is. It's like, I, I, I admit, I need grace. I need the grace of God. I need forgiveness, just not as much as you. And so it soft sells the cross. It's insane. And there's no need for it. Because I have all the dignity that I need, knowing that I am not only an image bearer of God, but I am purchased. And I'm a son of God through Christ, and therefore I don't need to think of myself more highly than I ought. You see, you can be humbly confident in Christ, but only through Christ. 
So I think the Lord means to tell us something, to show us something in that newness of life idea in verse four. Something beautiful to explore and to begin to inhabit. So the benefits of being baptized into Christ. We could go on forever, but just looking at our text, verses three through four. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I looked it up. The word for baptism in the New Testament is baptizo. It means to immerse or to drown or to submerge. This is why we baptize by immersion here. I believe it's the most biblically faithful way to do it. And not only that, although that's plenty, but the reason is it's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the regeneration of a soul. It's a picture when you go under the water, it signifies that you are dead to sin. That the dominion of sin, the regime of sin has been conquered in Christ. You go under the water, dead to sin. You emerge from the water into the newness of life raised up with Christ. And so baptism is not a requirement for salvation. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But as baptism is a response to salvation, a declaration of what Christ has done in you, and it's clearly the biblical response, which you'll see in just a second, my question to you is why would you not be baptized? Why would you not want to display what Jesus has done, share that with the world, and to declare? So in Acts 8, there's a guy named Philip and a eunuch. So this eunuch, he works for the government, and he's hanging out in his chariot, and he's reading Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is an old, old book, not just to us, it was old, old to him. Centuries before Christ came, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, writes this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. So we catch up with their conversation. That's what the guy's sitting there reading in his chariot. The eunuch says to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. In beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. He said that sheep who was led to the slaughter was Jesus, the lamb who was led to be slaughtered on your behalf that you would never be slaughtered. And before his shearer, before his executioners, Jesus did not make a defense, but he just went. In his humiliation, Jesus was scorned and humiliated and stripped. Justice was denied him that you would be justified. His life was taken away from the earth that you could walk in the newness 
of life. Mr. Eunuch Man. And as they were going along the road, after this eunuch heard the gospel, after he saw the suffering of Jesus in his place, and Philip explained it to him, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, I just love this, see, here's water, what prevents me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. It's a beautiful display of what Christ does in a person. Baptized into his death, emerged in the newness of life. And I know that some of you who are not baptized or were sprinkled as an infant or (laughs) you might be triggered and, and, and distracted by this right now. And I would say good. Work through that with the Lord. Process that with him. Pray about that. But stay with me. So if you're in Christ, if you've surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus, it means you're baptized into his death. That's verse 3. Baptized into his death. Why is that good? Well, that fear, I don't know if you have this, but I have certainly experienced this. That fear of like, you know what? Someday I'm going to pay for this. It's like a, like a drunk going on a bender, and they're like, you know, this is going to really hurt at the end of this. But So there's like this sense of impending doom. If you've been baptized into the death of Christ, there is no impending doom for you. We will give an account for our lives, but there is grace and there is atonement for your sin. And that fear of condemnation can go. Verse 5, there's this double union, union in death, crucified with him, but also we shall be united with him in a resurrection like his, raised up with Christ. Ephesians says, raised up with him, seated at the right hand of God, the Father. I don't even know what that means yet. But I know that it means experiencing a deep union with Jesus experiencing his glory, being with him. Verses 6 and 7 talk about the liberation from sin, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin would be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. I don't know if you're one of those people that is walking in sin and you're like, I can't kick this. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I just can't kick it. This sin is more powerful than me. It's more powerful than God. I don't care what you say, pastor, anybody. The sin's too big for me. I don't know if you've ever read 1 Corinthians 10, but this will change your life. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. It does not mean your temptation is nothing. It means that you are not special. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There's a regime change in you 
church family, if you are in Christ and your sin is not more powerful than God and he will provide a means of escape, are you walking in that? Some of y'all know, maybe you don't know what Juneteenth is. June 19th, Juneteenth. So in January of 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, changing the legal status of slaves to be free, free men and free women, and yet they could not walk in that freedom yet. Many of them were still in bondage. Two and a half years later, June 19, 1865, in Texas, there was an order that was given that freed the slaves in Texas. It was the last remaining legal barrier. It said, walk in your freedom. Free at last. And that's what the civil rights movement is, is still about, is walking in that freedom. But my question for you, if you can imagine being freed and not, not yet freed, have you been emancipated by Christ? Have you been liberated? Have you been conquered by Christ such that the domain of darkness is gone in you? That you are no longer powered by sin, but you are powered by Christ. And even though you struggle, you can walk in the newness of life. Are you haughty? Are you defensive? Are you still trying to justify yourself? Are you living life on the Autobahn, just going as fast as you want because grace is bigger? Are you walking in the justification that Christ affords you? Keep your eyes on Jesus. Look to him. Hebrews 12 says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. Let us put off the old self. Let us get rid of the old living and the sin which clings so closely. Let us put to death that sin. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's done all of it. He founds you in faith. He perfects you in faith. Look to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And if you are in him, you have been raised up with him. So how can we, who have died to sin, still live in it? Inhale the fresh air of the gospel this morning. Walk in your freedom that Christ has afforded you. Would you pray with me? God, your word is so fresh. and is both convicting and 
encouraging. And I pray, Lord, that we would begin to walk in the newness of life. I pray that those who are here who are still enslaved to sin, there has not been a regime change. They are ruled by the kingdom of darkness. They have not surrendered to your Lordship, Jesus. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would overcome them now. Make them new in Christ. May they surrender to your Lordship, Jesus, and experience your freedom. Those of us that are following you, Jesus, and yet we still are immobilized in our oldness. Taking grace casually because it'll be covered. We repent of that. Those of us that are trying to to take grace in our own hands to defend ourselves, to explain ourselves, to earn our way to you, we repent. Help us to walk in our freedom and help us to lift our voices and our souls in praise to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.